Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm David Sims. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on the culture team, Sophie Gilbert. Hi, David. Hi, Sophie. And Shirley Lee. Hello. What are some other ones we've done together? I feel like we're a trio, but now I'm, rem- now I'm trying to remember. Have we trioed before? We've trioed. We're reg. We're reg. Yes. <laughs> we were the Spencer trio. Oh, Spencer. That was our trio. Spencer. This is the Euro trio. I'm confused every time you guys mention Spencer. It makes me think of Spencer and I, I just can't get past <laughs> it. David, did you just call this the Euro trio? <laughs> well, because we did Spencer. That's obviously set in England. We did No oh, Time to Die. I that see. is That's set right. in various parts of Europe. Oh, that was my favorite one. And we're doing The Lost Daughter uh, today. Netflix's The Lost Daughter, which is set on a Greek island. It is an adaptation of an Elena Fronte novel of the same name. It also is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. Uh, When it came out on Netflix in December, after a brief theater release, uh, it had a fairly polarized reaction. The main central character is a mother played by two different actors of two different ages, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley. And the film is a fairly unflinching examination of motherhood, of parenthood. Uh, We're two years into a pandemic that's been hard on everyone. It's been especially hard on parents. I saw this film. I just want to say I am a fairly new parent, uh, as you guys know. And I saw this film right around when I got back to work after my parental leave. And it rattled me Mm. to my core as a parent. Uh, And uh, obviously, that is a major thing to discuss about The Lost Daughter. What do you guys think of The Lost Daughter? Well, as you said, David, a a lot of the discourse about the movie has been about confronting the unspoken truths about motherhood, parenthood. I'll say motherhood now, but I am acknowledging that your experience. No, but of course, no, it is specifically about motherhood. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think the thing I I took away from it is it just makes clear that you can never escape your kids. (laughs) 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 Even you, I mean, but I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm using that lightly, but I, I think that is, that is the theme of the movie. Like, uh, you you see Olivia Coleman arrive on her Greek beach, and you know Ed Harris is carrying her bags, and she's so carefree, and she's flitting in the ocean, and and Paul Mescal is bringing her a cornetto, and all these like dreams mm-hmm. of of post pandemic life, and and then she sees the mother on the beach, played by Dakota Johnson, and the sort of rowdy family um, from I think Astoria or Queens or some some they're from Queens, Queens yes, from Queens, yes, not they specified are from Queens. But uh, something about seeing this woman, this this mother who has a young child and who seems sort of, um, shall we say, not 100% involved in parenting her young child or at least more interested in relaxing on the beach. Um, no judgment I would be too. <laughs> <laughs> 
reminds her of her own children specifically the point as she confesses towards the end of the movie that she left them for three years of, of their life to go and try and pursue her own creative professional dreams without them and romantic uh, dreams yeah although i think doesn't she say that she is broken up with peter sask it's not about him yeah so I- the romance, the the brief affair she has is not really the reason she leaves her kids. It's it, yeah. it's sort of happening in the middle of that all that. But yeah. So I'm I'm curious what you made of it, Shelley, because to me it was just very much about like once you have kids, there is no escape mm-hmm. from them. Even even mentally, even briefly, they will always be with you for better or for worse. Like I always I always say the the best parts of my day every day now are dropping my kids off and picking them up and dropping them off because finally I have this space that I've craved to do my creative work and then I just miss them all day so much that right. <laughs> when I pick them up it's like Uh-oh. it's a relief. It's a profound relief. So it's sort of the duality of this yes and no and missing things and not missing them. And what about you, Shells? Well, I'll say this as as both of you know, I I'm not a parent myself. So, but I am a huge Elena Ferrante fan. You know, like a lot of women, I think I find the precision of her writing, the the interior emotional dialogues to be so compelling. Every word always feels like it, it just strikes me right like in the core of my mind, but also my heart. And anyway, I walked into the screening kind of apprehensive. I mean, this is, like we said, Maggie Gyllenhaal's debut feature. Um, I wondered if because of her background as an actor, it was going to be, a, you know, a, a vehicle for showcasing performances over maybe the emotional raw material of, of Fronte's words. But I, I walked away absolutely loving it, not necessarily because I understood what it's like to be a parent, but because of the artistry of the film. It kind of, it's one of those movies that, lingers in your mind the way that Ferrante's words linger in my mind. It's it's so precise in its imagery and it understands that while time is linear, you know, your thoughts and your emotions and your memories are not. And it, it, it captures what's so feverish about the novel, mm. the emotions of its characters in, in a way that like you walk out of the theater and you continue to think about it and then it sinks its claws into you a little bit more and you can't stop thinking about it. So the next thing you know, because of your job, you can reach out and ask if you can talk to Maggie Gyllenhaal about it and then you end up thinking about it for a full month. So <laughs> that's that's where I am with it. But I also do think that like, even aside from what it says about motherhood, I do think there's like the, the power of it really comes through too in the way that women the way that Leda observes Nina Dakota Johnson's character for instance there's there's a longing there's this like erotic obsession that's also just mixed with guilt and it's so heady and anyway my point is I I couldn't get it out of my mind and I I really liked the film because of that (laughs) that's a really good point actually because it it did make me think too of the relationship between Lila and Lenu in the Neapolitan mm-hmm. novels, how it's sort of savage. <laughs> like, yes, very it's, intense it's and almost eroticized. And, but also there's this undercurrent of, of kind of violence or barbarism or like something animal under the surface that I think, you know, you wrote so well about yellow jackets. Like there is this dynamic in, in girls that isn't often buzz, buzz. made explicit, but when it is, it's, it's really powerful to see. Yeah. I mean, that's the core of Ferrante's work, right? Where it's kind of like there's something cruel about girlhood and 
womanhood, but that cruelty is not necessarily inherent in being a woman. It, it comes from the expectations around being a woman. And, it, and the Neapolitan novels really get at this because it's, I mean, they're set in Naples. It is really about this friendship that's twisted in, in many ways. And uh, this film gets at that even without, you know, having its characters be from Naples, which I think is something that Ferrante sometimes leans back on just being like, this city, it's full of crime and violence. So I can, <laughs> so, so you right. get where I'm coming from. It's like Gotham of Italy. Yeah, yeah. And I think Gyllenhaal was smart to take that element out of it and do her own thing. Right. The The, the novel is actually set in Italy. Am I correct? Yeah, Southern the, Italy. The, the Greek. Right. And is Lita Italian? I assume. It, it's all, everything has been transposed. Yeah, no, Lita is from uh, Naples. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's so is the family that uh, arrives setting, on the beach. Right. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons why she's so troubled, I think, right. by their arrival is that they remind her of the, the culture that she's left behind kind of elevated herself above. Where are you from? Um, from Cambridge, near Boston. No, no, I mean, where are your people from? Lida Caruso, played by Olivia Coleman, is a, a professor, a translator, on vacation, ostensibly to work uh, on this Greek island, and she's very prickly, uh, and it's a little difficult to figure out, like, is she here to relax? Is she here to get away from something? Because like anytime anyone asks her a question, she kind of throws up the shutters. You know what I mean? Like she's Mm -hmm. just a little inscrutable. Ed Harris, who is so good in this movie and, and it so rarely plays a a role like this, like is playing this kind of gentle kind of salt to the earth, like expat landlord guy, like with a hat, (laughs) like he's not playing like a sort of stern or grim guy. Like, He's kind of trying to reach out to her and and sort of be like, hey, you know, I I get it, you know, uh, uh, on a few occasions in the movie, and she's usually sort of pushing him away. But he, you know, he's he's setting her up in the apartment, uh, the family, like you say, of Dakota Johnson and Dagmara Dominic Chick. I should have checked how to pronounce her name. You know, all <laughs> family is running around making noise. And I guess the early plot thing, and I went into this movie knowing nothing. I really, it had not uh, come out, obviously, and I I was seeing a fairly early screening. So the early plot was Dakota Johnson's daughter goes missing very briefly, uh, and the whole family's running around looking for her. And I was like, oh, is this going to be like a lost kid movie? It's like, you know, the, the title is The Lost Daughter, obviously. But then Lita finds the kid. And reunites mm-hmm. her with the family, and all seems well. And you're sort of like, okay, look, they're here. This is mm-hmm. this is a, the foundation of a character drama. And then you find that Lita has stolen the the girl's doll, and is sort of secreting it away in this sort of maddening, you know, bit of behavior that is wonderfully unexplained. It's been a weird day. Mm-hmm. We found her, and then she lost her doll. I loved it. I love the doll. Yeah, I, lo- I yes. love I love Lida. I love like you said that she is just impossible to understand. I mean, when she arrives, she's like apologizing to Ed Harris over and over again. She's like, "I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, sorry for my bags, I'm so sorry." And I was like, "God, woman, you're on holiday, relax. <laughs> like he he can carry this. He he may have a cardiac episode, but he you know he can carry the bags. It's fine." And then you know what feels like a scene later. Um, the character of Callisto comes along and asks her to move her beach chair and she flatly refuses. And I was like, yes, girl, stand your ground. Don't move mm-hmm, your beach chair. Mm-hmm. You were here first. You own that beach chair. Don't let you know, the family 
take over your that, whole calm situation. Yeah. It's the thing that none yeah. of us would ever do. We would always move our beach chairs because, you know, we're conditioned to be people pleasers. And so, you know, you know you're like, who is this woman? And then she steals the doll. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm like, it's like she has a lot of issues to deal with, I think we can say, that we see in the movie um, involving maybe her parents, which, Shelley, you've read the book. Did, does it get into her family growing up more than the, the movie does? Yeah, the, the book does dive a little bit more into her own relationship with her mother, but not in, not in a way that it overwhelms the story. So I think Maggie Gyllenhaal made the right decision to kind of excise a little bit of that and be a little more restrained in drawing too many parallels. I loved what the film concentrated on, just just that turn where you're constantly, even though you can perhaps relate to this woman that you're watching, this this woman doing the watching is judging the other mother as well. It's just, it's complex, man. (laughs) Well, the the reason why I love the doll so much is because... Mm -hmm. I've seen this with my own kids. Um, Dolls are how we learn to care for things. Um, And it's Mm. very, like, my my twins are 18 months old. It's very kind of innate, this impulse to to take care of things. And and they they see these things and they just kind of pick them up and hug them. And then, you know, my son throws them right on the ground because he he doesn't, (laughs) hasn't (laughs) finessed that part of himself yet. But but it's really interesting when you think about it in reference to the movie, how Olivia Colman almost seems to be sort of trying to, learn how to be a mother again through the doll, like taking care of it and removing whatever is gross inside it that turns out to be the worm and becomes this like very (sighs) grotesque, unsettling Mm. image of like motherhood corrupted and things hidden inside things that we aren't expecting. Particularly in parenting. (laughs) So I I just, I love the doll. I'm not, I'm again, like I said, I'm not sure I fully understand it, but it is such a good symbol. No, the doll is good. The metaphor of the doll, the inscrutable metaphor of the doll is good. Partly because at first you're like, is this some scheme she's playing where she will return the doll quickly and be the conquering hero again. Like, is it a way for her to further ingratiate herself? Is that Lita's game? And then you sort of realize, like, that's not at all her game. She doesn't really have a game in the slightest. Mm-hmm. It's more that the like the weird tension that she's creating is just sort of stirring all this stuff up in her that she's you know ruminating on, and she's thinking about how she relates to Nina, how she doesn't. And as the audience member, though, you're just sort of. I mean, I started just tearing my hair out being like, just give the doll back. Like, she wants the doll. Like, what are you doing? Uh, which I love. Like, I love how much mm-hmm. this fairly plot light movie with no major, you know, sort of like, the, again, like the, the kid does not disappear. The stakes are fairly low. Everyone's mm-hmm. on holiday. There are bad feelings abound, but that's it. But I'm like on, you know, the edge of my seat and digging my nails into my legs like just sort of trying to figure out what is going on with this person and and what is going on in these larger dynamics and then we're cutting to these flashbacks of her as a younger mother played by jesse buckley like and sort of getting more emotional shading there and those scenes i found similarly wrenching because it's very especially as an again as a new parent it's very discombobulating to see someone ignore a child whereas i feel like maybe before i'd been a parent i would not have felt that way but i was sort of like i sort of couldn't believe that i was watching that and at the same time it's incredibly sympathetic and and it's beautifully directed by gyllenhaal it's very rattling and it's very 
unsettled like you know as it should be mm-hmm. like you're in you're in the head of someone who's sort of like struggling to hold on while these two kids kind of cry and yell and crawl all over her and she's clearly sort of disassociating at times don't do that don't you dare ever again bianca <laughs> listen to me don't you dare ever again Shirley, you interviewed Maggie Gyllenhaal about this film, and I was wondering what Maggie, I call her Maggie because she's my friend. No, <laughs> I was wondering what <laughs> Maggie said about how the two different actors playing Lita approached the role. I mean, the core of what I wanted to find out from her was how she took the language of Ferrante and, and brought it to screen, right? It's a classic question. And she talked about how when she thought about casting Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman, she wondered if that was the wrong thing to do where you are kind of creating two films in one. There's the current uh, Leda who's on the beach, and then there's the flashback Leda. Whereas in the novel, it is all jumbled together. It's not just like clear-cut flashbacks. There's a separate timeline or anything like that. It's more just a cascade of thoughts and feelings. And that's how, you know, that's how people's minds work. And it was interesting. She, She didn't need the actors to talk to one another and at one point Olivia was curious about what Jesse was doing in her part of the film watched like a scene and then was like wait I don't want to watch anymore Mm, they're playing the same character but it actually like it feels more natural that you would not be able to access your previous self so directly you're you know and it is absolutely believable that a woman would transform in 20 years and so I think she, I think Maggie did tell me, and now I'm just saying Maggie. <laughs> Maggie, Maggie did tell me that like the two of them, she did want to make sure they had basically the same accent because that's something that you got to work on. But, you know, anything as mundane as hair color to just, you know, choices and, uh, you know, your gait, the way you behave, all, all of that can transform. When the oldest was seven and the youngest was five, I left. <laughs> I abandoned them and I didn't see them for three years. I thought it was really extraordinary, actually, how well they did seem like two different eras of the same person. And I think yeah. accent was really mm-hmm. a large part of it. I, I'm such a Jesse Buckley fan, and obviously everyone is an Olivia Colman fan, so <laughs> you know, goes without saying. But they just function so well independently, playing this woman who is sort of processing what she's done <laughs> in her life and and everything, how it's gone wrong, how it's gone right maybe how everything her hopes her goals her dreams it was just it was so um potent to see them kind of in in congress what did it feel like without them felt amazing felt like i'd been trying not to explode and then i exploded i think one of the reasons the movie has been so talked about is obviously Mm -hmm. the moment that we're in where mothers I think are all living their own version of Jesse Buckley flashbacks you know where we're at home and we're trying to work I mean David you have a sick kid at home I had a I, well I was writing about this movie mm. last week I had to I got a I wrote my first paragraph it took me all day and then I got a phone call immediately <laughs> having you know you get right in the writing mode and then I got a phone call saying can you come and pick your daughter up she won't stop crying and she's coughing the and dreaded like, phone call and it's oh wrenching because I, I, if I could have flown there to be by her side to grab her, I would have. But at the same time, I just wrote in a paragraph. And you're so, I think we're all in, in, in this moment where now COVID has been going on for two years almost. And if you are a parent, you have experienced tremendous, I mean, everyone has experienced tremendous amounts of pressure and strain. But there's something that COVID is, is making so transparent about 
all the ways in which parenting is built in this very flimsy foundation and how easily it can just fall apart underneath you. Um, that those scenes with with Jessie Buckley, you know, with her headphones on and her daughter's crying and she's like yelling at her husband, husband, let's Columbia on the phone and you're just like, oh, take care of your child. But also I, I, I hear it. I'm working. I'm suffocating. That scene, I really, I, I almost, in the theater, I wished I could like watch it again because it is so precise. You see younger Leda played by Jessie Buckley. She's got her headphones on. She's working on her translation. And her daughters are just around her screaming, like needing her attention. Right. And you've already seen her in other scenes, like giving her attention to them. But in this moment, she just needs the space for herself and they won't shut up. <laughs> and she, mm-hmm. and they... They, they get physical with her and then she takes them to the other room. She slams the door and the glass falls and yeah, you see it. It's tough. It's so tough because you see, you see the daughter's like stricken look on her face. And that look is also mirrored through that shattered door by Jesse's face. And you just walk away from that scene being like, this is how it works. And not, neither of them are wrong. It's just, you, you both need each other's attention. And that's, that's almost the contract <laughs> that you've signed. <laughs> Speaking as a non-parent, that seems like. <laughs> no, that's that's it. That scene is very upsetting. Yeah. That, that sort of feeling as a parent of like, obviously that failed. is an extreme sequence where, right, where she's broken glass and it's it's sort of freaky, but <laughs> right, like where it's like, I have uh, blown it in some way in front of my kids. They know I've whatever, you know, lost it or blown up at them or, you know. I don't know, lost my temper, lost my cool, lost my, you know, sense of grounding. And then the the sort of the shame and embarrassment of that. I don't want to see you right now. I don't want to see you right now. This would be a different and much less interesting movie if it was about a person who abandoned her family, feels bad about it, but never saw them again, right? Like made this Mm -hmm. some sort of terrible decision to flee a marriage and a life and like, you know, but that's not what this is about. This is about someone who, you know, did uh, leave their family, return to the family. And as Sophie's saying, like knows now in her fifties, like you can never really like, you know, shut the door on that or be free of that. And she misses her kids and Mm -hmm. she wishes her kids thought about her more and she wishes she was more connected to them, but also she knows how difficult and overwhelming being a parent was and she knows that she is sometimes a selfish person as she said you know you know what i mean like it's it, ha- having this not be a morality tale and instead just be about this sort of swirl of feelings that are yeah. unresolved decades later and yeah. then kind of bubbling up as she's watching this sort of tableau play out in front of her it, it's really really good and i mean i know this film when it dropped on netflix provoked like some pretty polarizing reactions because the thing with netflix is <laughs> You know, your film can be pretty widely seen, like at the touch of a button. They have hundreds of millions of subscribers, yada, yada, yada. And I I think, you know, this is not a film with like easy answers or an ending that just sort of like closes the book and makes you feel like things are resolved. You know, like that is what is so impressive about it, I think. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It really reminded me of that scene towards the end of the last season of Succession when Caroline Collingwood is having it out with Shiv at her bachelorette party and she says I think she says a version of the I'm I, I shouldn't have been a mother some people just aren't made to be mothers like a version of the of leaders I'm not a natural mother um, yeah. I'm a very selfish person and it it kind of strikes Shiv to her core not because she doesn't know this about her mother but I think because she wonders what it means for her like whether she's inherited this trait of like mm-hmm uncaringness and an inability to really tend for someone selflessly to tend for someone else and I think Shiv knows in that moment that she doesn't have that either it's just so rich this thread of mothers and daughters and and no one is making a movie about a father who leaves his kids or maybe they are but it's not (laughs) there are (laughs) in fact movies about fathers who leave their kids but then they're not they don't carry the weight of all this emotional baggage do you know what I mean yeah, it's still considered the worst thing you could possibly do. Right. A mother the unforgivable children, sin. Right? It's, yeah. it's not like fa- right. you, you see fathers leave all the time in, in filmed entertainments, right? You get the deadbeat dad, you get the, you yeah. know, you get the ones who who leave and they never return and it's just kind of accepted as as the tableau of this family. Yeah. Um but I do think like part of why this film also sparked such discourses because it came in the middle of a lot of different projects that were wrestling with this question. But I think it's the one that is the most effective and the one that feels most true. I've seen a lot of critics compare, you know, this film to the mother played by Jessica Chastain in Scenes from a Marriage and say that, well, look, there are so many women who do go through these narratives of abandoning their family and and these projects don't judge them. They, they almost want you to respect them. And I, I disagree that these other projects are doing it as well as this film does. In Scenes yeah. from a Marriage, it it really does vilify her, but it does spend an inordinate amount of time saying that the husband is the one who is correct and she is vilified for leaving. And, you know, there's another film that kept being brought up as a counterpoint. I think it was Come On, Come On, which is a film that I really do like a lot. But, mm. you know, and yeah. that... Yeah, and in that film, the mom has to leave for a bit, but the film gives you a reason why, you know, like a really deliberate well, reason right. why. She's dealing with the boy's father who yes. has, you know, uh, yes. his own issues that he's working through and all that. That's what's going yeah. on. Come on, come on, right. My point is just that, yes, there are a lot of projects that are acknowledging how tough motherhood is, but I think this is the one that really does it with no judgment and without giving you some alternative explanations for why a mother is acting the way that she does. Without saying, like, there's a distinct reason and it's an acceptable reason. And therefore, this mother is good. This film is about how there's no good mothers or bad mothers. It's just, as Maggie told me, (laughs) (laughs) she wanted this film to be an exploration of what it even means to be a natural mother. I'm an unnatural mother. Yes, that line, I'm an unnatural mother. What does that mean to you, Sophie? That was the line that Maggie Gyllenhaal said struck her so strongly. Maggie Gyllenhaal, of course, a parent herself, 
with Peter Sarsgaard, who's also in this film as the the <laughs> professor that lures Jesse Buckley away from Jack Farthing. With poetry. I guess with philosophy, actually. With poetry um, and a big oily beard. He's got oh, a big old oily. beard. Yeah, and wine. And Always wine. Inspired bit of casting. Much it's, wine. It's a real, I actually really like that she cast her husband as this undeniably like appealing, but also kind of, you know, Very sweaty. Sleazy. Ed sleazy, sleazy uh, right, yeah. academic. Right. Uh, he sleeps with his students. Yeah, you know, ho bag, whatever. I don't, I don't <laughs> know how how uh, how how rude I can be, but I mean, again, just just you know, g- 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 funny, clever, and good casting by Maggie. Yeah, I have anyway, I have a lot of ideas about the unnatural mother line, which is it. One of the things I found so unsettling in the film is this theme of like corruption and rot and things going sour like the fruit that rots and we when she arrives in her apartment the fruit is fresh and delicious and then a couple of days later it is rotting in the bowl and then obviously there's the the worm and the doll and just her holiday goes very very sour (laughs) so it, it i don't i don't know what a natural mother is i i know that as a parent so many of the instincts that you have that you think are, are natural ones are actually the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing, um, particularly when it comes to like sleep and reinforcing boundaries. And mm. so I, I know I know what she means in the film, what Lida's character means is the sense that like her instinct is not to drop everything and take care of her kids above herself and put her kids' needs immediately above her own, that she has these selfish desires and ambitions. Not, I don't know that they're selfish, but I think it, she interprets them in that way. And that her sort of unwillingness to, or her inability to be able to let go of those desires and dreams and ambitions of her own in service of her children is maybe what she sees as unnatural. And I think one of the reasons the movie is connecting is it's it's giving people an opportunity to maybe say, hi, I feel that too. And so the thing I've been thinking about, because I, when I when I wrote about the movie, I wrote about it with this new novel by Jessamine Chan, The School for Good Mothers, which is a kind of semi-dystopian, futuristic-ish novel where when mothers are found to have sinned as mothers, they are taken to an institution and like taught to be good mothers. And the thing that they are taught over and over and over again is that when you are a mother, you have no desires of your own anymore. What you want doesn't matter. Everything is about your kids. You must put away all your own impulses and purely tend to your children. You must absorb things and absorb things and absorb things and take on every burden that life gives you because that is what mothers do. And I think it is kind of a relief in this moment to be having this conversation about is this really a healthy pattern for parenting like I mean this week I think there was an event in Boston where a bunch of mothers got together to scream in public yeah. because they're so they're so exhausted and overwhelmed and over it and so yeah natural mother good mother I don't know I've been thinking about all of these things and what they are and and what they mean and the thing that the movie seems to say is is maybe there is no natural mother, but there can be moments in your life where if you're not careful, this impulse gets corrupted. Does that make sense to you guys? It mm-hmm. does. I also, I mean, again, as a new parent, I keep saying that. Um, David, say as a dad. As, as a father of a daughter. As a father of a daughter. <laughs> Hashtag. Uh, um, you know, when you're reading the books and all that, and you know, this is not too completely decry 
parental literature. Obviously, some of it can be helpful. But so many of the books are basically telling you like how you should behave with your kid, right? Even if it's in very, very vague ways of like, oh, you know, try not to do this or try to do this. But like the minute the, the kid arrives, you're, you're just, you know, you can't really fundamentally alter who you are to follow some sort of rule book that you read in a book. Like, you know, you are going to be the parent you're going to be. There's things you can do. There's, you know, challenges you can face up to or, you know, sort of processes you can try and explore. But, you know, but like you are going to be whatever parent we're going to be like to some extent is that is that rude to say i don't know i mean <laughs> well I, you become yeah. a parent like like you said the part of your brain that still gets angry and stressed out and frazzled and snaps like that doesn't that part doesn't go away so i think this scene with one of the reasons the scene with the door is so powerful is because we've all had that moment where we lose it and then we feel horrible about what we've done and you have you think like can i repair the damage of what I just did and the, the glass door is such a perfect metaphor it because it's like this boundary is shattered. <laughs> it just yeah. it just works so well yeah. as a metaphor for that that moment where something breaks. And post shattering, she kind of can pursue this forbidden thing, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Like like some sort of reality has broken around her and maybe she can actually, you know, go off and romance Peter yeah. Sarsgaard and have her have a different life. I think the film is trying to illustrate that it is so twisted to believe that it is unnatural to have natural impulses. You see the same beats play out between Leda and Nina, right? Where Nina is having an extramarital affair. I mean, both of these women wanted sex and freedom and liveliness and space. That happens in Leda's past as well when she meets those hikers, right? And she has this lively conversation that's like intellectual and and she yearns for that and that's a natural need on her part but it's considered unnatural i wanted to ask you guys what you thought about that because i i read a terrific review in the new republic about the queer undercurrent between leda and the female hiker Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the suggestion maybe that this is the role that she wants to play to nina be the person who can kind of bring out her creative fire in a way that the hiker seems to do for later in, in flashback but also she does seem kind of compelled to really stare at her in a way that seems charged with maybe some eroticism what did you guys think i think it's erotic to her that this person is living such a you know at least in lita's eyes liberated life mm-hmm. i struggle to pick up a particularly explicit queer sort of coding there because obviously you know she has all this hot sweaty sex with peter sarsgaard she doesn't seem you know she seems very interested in paul mescal as many of us are who uh, isn't exactly you know um <laughs> So, but so it's I you know I, I I would struggle to be like oh well you know the thing that she's not confronting is is this. I think she sees the hiker as an example that she had never thought of. Like this is a way of life that had never occurred to her. And when you see a new possibility presented to you, that can be a really powerful, like emotional, even erotic feeling. And I think mm-hmm. that's what she's working with here. We're obliged to do so many stupid things from childhood, even. Obliged. Yes. What happened to us is the only thing that's happened to me since I was born that makes sense. Can we talk about the ending? Yes. So mm-hmm. in this film, not much happens uh, <laughs> beyond what we've been talking but about. It's but it's very loaded. It's very loaded and charged happen. and anxious. Yeah. And like uh, menacing the husband yeah. who has business in Kalamata Olives, I assume. But 
you know, he has a mm-hmm. neck tattoo and he he looks meanly at people. It's, He's a bit it's very charged. Yeah. Big, bit aggro. And of course, there's, uh, you know, the, the discovery that Nina is having an affair with Paul Mescal, who plays Will, who's a, a charming waiter at the resort. And there's this scene where uh, Lita tries to watch a movie and there's a bunch of, you know, neighborhood Youth. kids. Yeah, there's a bunch of youths who are interrupting this art film. <laughs> It's sort of one of the strangest scenes in the film. Uh, you know, anyway, there's a lot of anxiety and tension around that. And when So anyway, when Lita finally gives the doll back to Nina and admits her whatever, her fault, and sort of talks about being an unnatural mother and warns Nina that, like, you know, she, it's never going to change for her either, Nina stabs her with uh, a hat pin that she bought her this sort of shocking moment and then lita drives off the resort and in the night crashes the car or drives it off the road and stumbles on the beach and collapses which is the first shot of the film that is the climax of the film there's so much in that moment david to kind of (laughs) try and unravel Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the savagery of the stabbing someone that real like violence like and then and then this question of is Lita okay she's passed out on the beach is she dead she wakes up is she alive is she in purgatory she has a lovely (laughs) conversation with her daughters um and I think the line in the book that she says she says at the end of the movie I'm alive actually in that great Olivia Coleman way um Mm -hmm. but in the book Shelley doesn't she say I'm dead but it's fine yeah, she says, I'm dead, but it's fine. Um. Right, they switch the word, the crucial word, <laughs> the dead to alive. Right? Yeah. That is, but I mean, Maggie Gyllenhaal is pretty, that was an artistic decision she made. It's not like she yeah. uh, read the book wrong. Or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she. I think she, like, like it is kind of mischievous. I, I like it. She flips it on its head. And, and she also makes the ending a lot more surreal than it is in the book. In the book, I mean, Leda has a conversation with her daughters, right? Like, hops on a call. Yeah. says a little cheeky line about being dead but it's fine <laughs> like, i really like the ending i appreciate maggie's need maggie gyllenhaal's need to give us a bit of relief i think if it ended with her being like oh you know i'm dead <laughs> after you've watched her be stabbed and bleed from a wound it might just send you out being like okay so she's dead she's been punished <laughs> like you know like you know you know what i mean like it might feel a little more final than the kind of you know glib sort of arch funniness of of the final line in the book. I don't know. I get it. Yeah, I walked out of this being like, she absolutely knew every frame of this and how to tell it. And I wasn't surprised that um, Elena Ferrante also screened the film and has since said that she thought it was solid. <laughs> right, oh. the mysterious Elena Ferrante. Though she did say, "I missed that final line of mine." Right, I've, I've uh, yeah, read yeah, that yeah. somewhere that she, <laughs> yeah, that she noted the the change. Yeah, I mean, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal at heart is this like massive cinephile. Just in our interview, she was bringing up like the way she shot Dakota Johnson. You know, she she was thinking of Antonioni and and Godard, mm-hmm. and you know, in this ending, she was thinking of Hal Ashby and the way that she never wanted to judge later she was thinking of the woman under the influence like she she was dropping all these references and i do really think that her like creative impulses shine through in that ending she she decides to give it this surreal bent out of nowhere comes this orange <laughs> that later is peeling just that very personal intimate thing that she used to do with her daughters right that like they loved watching her just peel an orange into one long snake that never breaks and um that is in the novel, but it's not in the ending. And 
it is funny that the the dialogue ends up being the complete reverse, but I think we end up at the same idea. Yeah. That's a really that's a really good explanation of it. I love too the witchiness of the snake parents. Like they have this chant, this incantation yeah. with their kids where they're like, peel it like a snake. Don't let it break. You're like, oh, everything's so sinister in this film. I love it. It's sinister, but it is also like right that weird. Yeah. There's the sweet and in the weird power of motherhood, of parenthood, of right, like where you like you mm-hmm. can do this thing that has a hold on your children. It's sort of mundane, but it is also sort of magical and and she does retain that even as her kids are grown-ups. Well, I and, remember yeah. when we talked yeah. about Bond, you were talking about like the line that Bond's daughter has that's something like, I don't know, do hippopotamuses have feelings? Or it's, do, do mosquitoes, mosquitoes have friends, there we I go. believe. Do hippopotamuses have feelings is great, though. But, these, but then in the, in the Lost Daughter, there's, there's another scene when Nina's like trying to lie on her beach lounger and enjoy her holiday, and the kid's like, what happened to the dinosaurs? <laughs> Should we close with a game? I mean, I liked Sophie's. What what cornetto flavor do you want? <laughs> well, not even a cornetto. If you if you were on a Greek beach, what ice cream treat would you want Paul Mescal to bring you? Oh my gosh! Someone say cornetto. so many possibilities. I know, I know. Well, th- it's tricky for me because British ice creams, as David knows, are very different, and I would say much richer in possibility than American ice creams. But um, I would I would agree with that. I do sometimes miss the. It's not the like you deck. can't find those things in America. We have to search for them. Whereas in Britain, they are on every street corner practically. Right. <laughs> um, I like a mint chocolate cornetto. I, I would not be opposed to that. It's a classic beach treat if I'm in Europe, mm. I would say. But yeah, I don't know. What do you guys want from Paul Mescal? Ice cream sandwich. Classic. Like a Klondike? A, a classic? No, no, a cookie, a cookie one. Oh, okay, okay. Like a, a nice, a nice Toll house, yeah. upscale ice cream sandwich. Yeah, like a 500 calorie ice cream sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I'm only thinking of this because I just saw cha-cha real smooth over the weekend Mm -hmm. at virtual sundance and there's a great scene with dakota johnson um where they're you know they're sucking on those like really cheap ice pops (laughs) the ones that you squeeze out of tubes and i i really wanted one so that's what's top of mind right now they have like Mm a one of them has a blue one Mm -hmm. and you know makes your tongue blue and and it just looks refreshing and i i would very much like paul mescal is that your Sundance recommendation, Shirley? We've been at Sundance virtually this week. I know you like Cha Cha Real Smooth. I did like Cha Cha Real Smooth. I liked I I um if I had to choose one that was truly a delightful surprise, it's this tiny little film from a Philippines-based writer director. Uh, her name is Martika Ramirez Escobar. And it's called Leonor Will Never Die. And it's about mm-hmm. this elderly woman who used to be famous because she wrote these like cheesy 80s action movies in the Philippines. <laughs> and she falls into a coma and then she ends up in like her own 80s movie. And it's like, it's just a lot of fun and I didn't oh expect gosh. it to be. And it's uh, it's like, there's elements of magical realism. It's cheeky, it's delightful. And it's got a really great lead performance. You know, one of those... Sundance surprises for me at least David what about you I really will recommend along the lines of uh, this film I recommend the film Resurrection Mm. uh, starring Rebecca Hall a horror Mm. film about a woman have you seen it Shirley I forget if you watched it no I haven't I haven't okay well you should check it out I will not reveal much but it is about uh, a single mother who has a teenage daughter and then a man reappears who uh, had some sort of 
dark role in her life many years ago, played by Tim Roth. And strange things occur. And yes, it's all about trauma, but it's also just very gonzo. And it has this incredible performance from Becca Hall at the center of it that uh, is transfixing. And uh, it's one of those movies, though, where you go in cold and expect wild stuff. Uh, Fun Sundance surprise. Anyway, Sophie, I assume you have not seen anything at Sundance. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I have that not. we're I have, blabbing I have, on. That's okay. I do want to see the miniseries about Bill Cosby. Like I've, mm. I've been reading that. Yes. I just we need to talk about story. Cosby. Yes. Like I w, believe that's what is it's it, called. Yeah, W. Cabal Bell's series about Bill Cosby. We need to talk about Cosby. just looks really deep. You guys, I just, it's sort of something that we need to, we need to talk about. That does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Uh, the executive producer of Atlantic Podcast is Claudine Abade. And our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm David Sims. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. Thanks, <laughs> guys.